Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, James Hanahan, on his new novel, Didn't Nobody Give a Shit What Happened to Carlotta. James Hanahan is the author of the novels God Says No and Delicious Foods, which was a winner of the Penn Faulkner Award. He lives in Brooklyn, where he teaches at the Pratt Institute. And today we're going to be talking about James's latest novel, which is Didn't Nobody Give a Shit What Happened to Carlotta. James, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you, Neil. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe the novel. It's the story of uh, a woman named Carlotta Mercedes, who went to prison in 1993, I believe it is. Before she had transitioned, she was uh, presenting as as a man named Dustin Chambers and transitioned while in prison. And the story takes place mostly on the day that she returns home from a prison in upstate New York. After um, 20 some odd years of uh, being in incarcerated in some form or another. So tell us something more about Carlotta Mercedes then. So who is she? I guess when we meet her. Well, we meet her during her parole board meeting at the very beginning. And the middle part of the book, the middle eight chapters, all take place on the same day when she returns uh, from the Ithaca Correctional Facility in upstate New York to Brooklyn. I mean, I feel like the most important thing to know about her is that she's from New York. This is a book that is large. I wish the book could actually be more about upstate New York as well as Brooklyn and the relationship between upstate and the city to some extent. But uh, just given the the rules of the way the book works, it didn't turn out to be quite as possible as I wanted it to be originally. But uh, Carlotta is one of, uh, she comes back to her childhood home a brownstone in Brooklyn, and discovers that her family, it's the uh, 4th of July weekend of 2015, and she is uh, discovers that her family is sort of partying harder than she remembers them ever partying. And there's just a kind of chaotic uh, atmosphere everywhere in the house and in her life, too, because she's, you know, trying without a whole lot of assistance to um, re-enter society she has a meeting with a parole officer who tells her of all of the stipulations or rules that she has to follow in order to gain release, a full release, after the parole ends. And it's this sort of long, slightly absurd list of, of rules that, you know, is kind of difficult for almost anyone to follow, let alone somebody who's been in prison for 
20 some odd years, 21, I think, 21-ish. Many of those years spent in solitary because one of the sort of horrible things that happens to trans women who are being incarcerated in men's prisons is that they're put into solitary for their own protection, supposedly, right? So, you know, to keep them out of general population um, where they're being abused and mistreated there by a different segment of the, the prison population. So it's just a sort of uh, I mean, I'm making it sound like it's not as uh, not as as fun a book as it, I think it actually is, um, because it seems like it's such it's a book that that touches on so many sort of social issues and questions of you know identity and that kind of thing. The thing that really keeps it all from becoming miserable is that Carlotta is a very lively, observant, smart, funny, reedy. <laughs> I don't know if that's people are going to know what that word means, but like. She just reads everybody and reads everything in a very unusual. I mean, I, it doesn't actually feel that unusual to me for some reason, but she just reads everybody in a way that is truthful and um, humorous. And um, she's got a kind of, I think for the book to work, she had to feel like somebody who was really hopeful. And, you know, there's a question of like, you know, how much hope can you possibly have in a situation like this? But you know, she's somebody that through all of this has remained hopeful that there's something on the other side that's better than what she's experiencing. She's an incredibly vivid and brilliantly realised character. Really funny as well. I mean, you're absolutely right that the book is is it's about a lot of uh, rather tough social issues, but is incredibly funny as well. That seems um, to be my jam. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're obviously not a um, a trans woman yourself. Tell us some more about where this character came from. Well. <laughs> I, I was almost going to take issue with you. Yes, you know, I was going to be like like Gandhi, like, I am a Hindu, I am a Muslim, I am like, you know, like, do you know that whole speech of Gandhi's where he just claims to be like every religion? I feel a little bit like that as a novelist. I'm like, yes, I am a trans woman. Yes, I am crack cocaine. Yes, I am black. Yes, I'm white. Yes, I'm all of these things through the writing, right? Like, all of that is a way of of connecting with people who are supposedly different, but who in a very basic way are very similar to one another. And that, I mean, that's one of those things that I feel like people are acknowledging less and less as I get older. And it's super baffling to me. Like, how is everybody going to get together unless we recognize commonalities, you know, and stop bickering amongst ourselves? But what I, what happened was I never, I didn't start at this book with the intention of making the character a trans woman. Um, but what happened was I started, the real germ of the book is that I've had a very long history with the neighborhood I live in, which is Fort Greene, Brooklyn. In the 1950s, my grandfather bought a, a brownstone in Fort Greene, which at the time was a dangerous black neighborhood. And when I was growing up, it was just where my grandmother lived. And so I spent a reasonable amount of time sitting on the stoop there and hanging out with my cousins and just being in the space and being in this area. And then um, gradually that neighborhood has gone from being that dangerous black neighborhood to being not just a wealthy white enclave 
to a reasonable degree, because like at a certain point, it it started to become a kind of when it started to gentrify, it started to gentrify with black people started to gentrify it. Black people of some means started to move here. And then there was a, uh, another wave of gentrification that was more Caucasian, let's say. And so there have been all these different phases of the life of the neighborhood. And lately it's just become, you know, they've been building high rises like incredibly fast. And um, I feel like I've had such a long history with the neighborhood and I've been so sort of baffled and and amazed at how rapidly it all seems to have happened that I kind of wanted to write about that. But in order to write about that in a fictional kind of sense, I felt that I needed a character who had not experienced a lot of the transformation of the neighborhood over the last, you know, 30 years or so, right? So who could that be? Maybe somebody who'd been in prison. And then I started thinking about like, who is in prison? And who would I be if I was in prison? Or how would I be treated if I were in prison? And I started to read, you know, a lot about LGBT people in prison. And it felt like the trans girls really have it the worst and I was very interested in the fact that no one seemed to really care or understand, including myself at the time, like nobody really seemed to understand or care what was going on. And then like, I'd been thinking about writing about the prison industrial complex, as people like to call it, and particularly the idea that over the years, our feelings about America's feelings, I should say, about incarceration have gone from like, well, this is a place of, you know, reform. This is a place where people come to contemplate their wrongdoing and like, you know, rebuild their their lives and and then re-enter society to a place where it's just punishment. Like the, you know, being sent to prison is a punishment and then whatever else happens to you in prison is more punishment that you deserve because you committed uh, you know, supposedly, which is I mean, it's not always true, but because you've been convicted of a crime no matter, you know, it doesn't matter what else happens to you in prison. And there's just something so nakedly vicious about that idea that I felt sort of compelled to write about somebody who's going through that, somebody who'd experienced that. And then this character just kind of stepped out of my brain and she said, bitch, I'm going to be the star of your book. And I was like, I don't know if people are going to really like that, Carlotta. And she was like, fuck around and find out. <laughs> So, I mean, and then all this other stuff started happening. And I mean, it gets really complicated, actually. So Ithaca, which is the um, the correctional facility that she's um, she's spent time at, it's it's a fictional prison, I guess, you know, based on something yes. like Attica or somewhere. So tell us what something about what Carlotta goes through in the years that she's in prison there, and particularly... Um, as you said, she spends most of her time, it's euphemized in the prison language, but basically in solitary. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's subjected to a lot of abuse. She's uh, repeatedly assaulted by a prison guard and she's, you know, beaten by other inmates at certain points and, you know, sort of disrespected in other kinds of ways. You know, not, I mean, <laughs> there's like kind of a long list of of things that happen to her that are unjust. And these are all things that I, you know, in my research about what happens to trans women in prison and, and afterward, all of these things are things that are relatively common 
experiences for people in in uh for trans people in prison and uh going through reentry as well. In fact, I I feel like the things that happen in real life are actually much more hellacious. I mean, a lot of people have told me that like that there are certain sections of the book that they had trouble reading because, you know, I, I don't think I ever got particularly graphic in this book about prison rape or in fact, there's a there's a way in which I try to keep a lot of that off stage because I think there's a kind of lurid fascination with what goes on in prison that appears in a lot of like literature about prison and, you know, books that are set in prisons. And there's far less about recidivism, you know, the the tendency for people who've been in prison to come back from prison and try to to adjust to whatever this modern life is, um, which is also itself constantly changing, right? It's weirdly difficult to be reading this book right now at this moment in history where I, you know, I, I don't know to what extent you you follow this news in the UK, but um, there's the government have just blocked the uh, Scottish government's attempt to, uh, you know, introduce the, the tiniest little bit of legislation that makes the bureaucratic life of, of trans people a little tiny bit easier. Um, entirely based on you know this idea this sort of like moral panic that um trans women will be housed in you know violent trans women will be housed in in women's prisons and it is right, like it's, it's right. so difficult reading what happens to to Carlotta in this book while hearing that repeated ad nauseum in the news yes I know. I mean, there's similar things that are happening in New York. You know, the trans women are forced into lives of prostitution and irregularly. I'm not saying it's everybody, obviously, but like they're and and uh, there's just a, a lot of stigma and it's difficult for people to get jobs, you know, all for all for the reason that like they won't want to live truthfully. Right. It's just I don't know. It's just such a common thing in our society that people who appear to be different are treated like shit by authorities that don't seem to understand or not even don't seem to understand but just definitely don't understand and refuse to understand and don't want the world to be complicated even though it's really hard to deny that the world is complicated at this point it's so wearisome to me to have to what is that thinking of that david bowie song where he says to be insulted by these fascists is so degrading i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to James Hanahan, and we're talking about his new novel, Didn't Nobody Give a Shit What Happened to Carlotta. And James, well, I was going to say something a bit lighter, though it probably turned out not to be that light, uh, but definitely as an aside, Carlotta Mercedes has taken her name from a real-life actress, Mercedes McCambridge. Right. Um, who I was not familiar with. Just tell us something briefly about her. It's had to be a quite tragic life. I mean, I knew her from, I used to listen to radio mystery theater when I was a kid, and she was a really fantastic uh, radio actor who appeared in uh, episodes of Lights Out and um, Ford Theater and uh, CBS Radio Mystery Theater. That's, I think that's the one that I, but she's, she was also in a lot of films. She won the 1949 Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress um, for her role as Sadie Burke in uh, All the King's Men, and the film won Best Picture that year. She won a Golden Globe. She's uh, She was in Johnny Guitar and uh, Giant. And um, the thing that I always thought was kind of funny that gets mentioned in the book is that she was the voice of Pazuzu, who is the, the demon in The Exorcist. I just I'm wondering, like, how did they uh, cast that? Like, was there a casting call? or And she was tied to a chair. Just know, did they just know that she had this in her wheelhouse? That she could, like, play a sort of disturbing demon voice? It's funny, I presumed, because, you know, because of the, you know, the subject matter, the, the main character, that she was some sort of gay icon or something. And I was thinking, well, I've never, never seen anybody do her what, on the Snatch what Game. actress so, is not in some... Well, this respect. is true. But, like, I looked her <laughs> up thinking that she was going to be like, you know... She's and, not and, like a huge one, but I mean, I feel, I feel like that makes more sense or it feels more real to me, you know, when somebody is not obsessed with the ones that are like the really big ones yeah right or they have like a little bit of sort of discern uh, like a discerning kind of taste about which actress it is and there are a lot of trans girls who um who adopt names that are are tributes to female icons in this way so yeah let's i wanted to talk about we sort of alluded to this at the beginning but um the narrative style of the novel so it's basically told in the blurb mentions that the book is um is influenced by ulysses by james joyce um you know, obviously not least it's set over one weekend or you know the one um fourth of july holiday yeah. weekend 
And it's told in this both third person and also Carlotta bursts out of the out of the page in a sort of first person stream of consciousness as well. So tell me something about how you came to this sort of narrative style. Well, the conceit for me became over time that there's a mi- very minor character in the book called Professor Brown with whom Carlotta works in the law library at Ithaca for a little while. And he says that, you know, she should really write her memoir. And the conceit for me is that he has put together this story and he's kind of reading it back to her. And she's interrupting to like either set the record straight or like tell him a little bit more or or just, you know, add some spice to the kinds of observations he's able to make um, from outside her head. Because I felt like there were things, you know, that that her voice could communicate much better than a third person narrator. And there are things that a third person narrator could do that I think Carlotta wouldn't be as likely to do. And I wanted also to make sure that those voices were equivalent to one another. There wasn't a kind of sense of, you know, this third person narrator is a smarter voice or a more observant voice than Carlotta's. It's not really about that. It's just about, you know, trying to make sure that her voice carries the same or even greater weight than that third person. As far as it's the intertextual nature of the book, I think, let's see, what happened was I had started writing the book and I realized that when you're writing a narrative about somebody who's coming back from upstate New York, you are by necessity rewriting the Odyssey because there are all of these municipalities in upstate New York that were named for classical literature figures and uh, references because of this one guy who was working in the uh, the office that was responsible for that after the Revolutionary War. And there are these parcels of land that they were, you know, I guess they were giving out because, you know, nobody owned them or anything beforehand um, after the Revolutionary War. It was a, a giant parcel of land in upstate New York that they refer to as the Central New York Military Tract. And this one guy, Robert Harper, was a classical literature buff, and he named a bunch of places in upstate New York after classical literature. And then, so I thought, well, I should probably sort of allude to that in some way, or use that, use the Odyssey in some way, because it kind of rhymes with the story too, right? It's like, you know, someone coming back from traumatic events, who is not, oh, and this is another reason why it felt like the right decision to have Carlotta be a trans woman is that, you know, Odysseus comes back from the war and being imprisoned in a sense to find that his closest uh, associates and friends like don't recognize him. Right. And that in the Odyssey, I think it's a little silly, actually, that, you know, he's back and nobody is like, nobody is like, hey, aren't you Ulysses? Or, excuse me, aren't you uh, Odysseus? But with Carlotta, it makes more sense. That, you know, after 20 some odd years away, she'd come back presenting as a different gender and people wouldn't recognize her. But then I've, I thought, well, you know, everybody's done that. Everybody has used the Odyssey as their sort of intertextual, I'm, you know, retelling. So uh, around that same time, my husband, who is of Irish descent and knows a lot of his family in Ireland, 
took me to Ireland, I guess, is how I like to put it. Although, you know, he used to go on a regular basis when he was younger. Um, but we we went to the the place where his father's side of the family still there's still a lot of people from that he's related to in this one area. And usually when I go to a new place, I bring a piece of a, a representative piece of literature with me. And of course, having never read Ulysses, I decided I was going to bring Ulysses, which I probably should. I probably should have gotten like a audio book or, a, you know, something that wasn't quite as hefty. But then I decided, oh, well, why don't I I sort of why don't I co-opt from both of these texts? Why don't I just kind of it's hard to it's hard to say exactly what I was doing. I think structurally I was referring to a lot of different things in both of those texts, sometimes at the same time, um, just to make things really difficult for myself, I think. Because after Delicious Foods, I sort of felt like I had a lot of feelings about what had happened with that book. I mean, there were good feelings. I'm not saying this, that, you know, I was sad or anything. But one of them was that I, here I have some cultural capital to spend. What is the best way I could use that? And another was just that I wasn't sure what it meant not to have to struggle in order to make the work that I wanted to make. And so I think I just created this huge problem for myself by, you know, piling all of this, uh, all of these requirements onto the way that the book had to be constructed. And you're not really supposed to have, you know, I mean, God forbid that you should feel like you had to read Ulysses or the, even the Odyssey before you read didn't nobody give a shit what happened to Carlotta. I mean, I can't stand books where that make you feel like you should read other books before you read them. It just really bothers me because I have like so many books that I haven't read just sitting on my desk waiting for me. So, I mean, I think in an, an ideal world, maybe what someone would do is read this book and then sort of go back and read the other books and then come back to this book and read it again and be like, oh, now I, I see what that what was going on. So to finish us off, can I get you to um to read us a bit? Um, I guess I'll just read a little bit from the beginning. Two decades and change into her beef, Carlotta Mercedes braced herself for audition number five with the New York State Board of Parole. She knew her many years in the shoe, 23-7 with no TV, no radio, no books, and no good touch, would probably blow her case this time, too. With so many box hits, she couldn't finish any of the A&D programs the knuckleheads liked to see. But solitary overkill wasn't the worst of her shots. Them son of a bitches said I had bad behavior, but they definition of bad behavior is if you scream when a CEO whooping your ass like a Betty Crocker fudge cake. Why did she keep getting hit? Sometimes she thought her case grossed out the panel. Other times she blamed her mini beefs, the LOMs, the LOCs, the LORs, the LOVs. She knew the bosses were pretty much clansmen, and at some point, she always went apeshit. Those motherfuckers better let me out this time, she told Frenzy, the new man she was riding with, out in the yard the day she heard. Who is they to judge my ass? Shut up, bitch, he soothed. You think you special? Don't expect nothing. You got nothing coming. Her eyes rolled behind her lids, and she whacked her arms closed. I've been had known not to speck nothing forever by this time. Fifty million motherfuckers already done told me how much nothing I got coming. So let's see it. Where my nothing at? And who's more of specials than I is? 
Her tongue had slipped a little out of fear that he didn't really have eyes for her, or big enough ones anyway. She felt like some kind of monkey mouth even before she'd shut her trap. If you want out, you better learn to talk right, Frenzy said, flashing a dimple. Folks be talking proper out there. Oh yeah, since when? She gave him face and flipped her hair so it grazed his nose. In 1993, Carlotta's cousin Caffele had shot some old lady who sold little bottles of Thunderbird to the skells of Bed-Stuy and put her to sleep for a month. Carlotta was in attendance, showing off her talent for bad timing. The lady woke up again, but the bullet lowered her IQ to a chimpanzee's and she could hardly brush her own teeth anymore. Caffey landed in Attica doing all day and a night. Mama must have stopped saving his supper. Carlotta turned state's evidence and still got 12 and a half to 22. The public defender called it getting off with a reduced sentence, but to Carlotta, that didn't sound like getting off in any way, shape, or form. The robbery or the aggravated assault with a deadly weapon could have gotten you 25 each, the judge whined. You're lucky to be doing them concurrently. That's luck, then fuck luck. So I've been talking to James Hanahan. We've been talking about his latest novel, Didn't Nobody Give a Shit What Happened to Carlotta? which is out in the UK from Europa Editions. James, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. You're very welcome. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.